All right, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the um, live stream of the Sunday evening service brought to you by coronavirus because we're doing our service outdoors for Sunday night, and that means that I cannot, you know, teach with um, with all the all the audio and video recording stuff because we're just bare bones outside. So we're doing it live. We're going to be getting today into Mark chapter ten, verses seventeen through twenty. Well, through thirty-one, really. And this is about the rich young ruler. This particular passage is, well, it's a challenging passage for a number of reasons. It's commonly misused, this passage that we're in. And I'm very interested as I do verse by verse teaching in covering the the areas of misuse, the abuse of a passage and kind of tackling those as we go verse by verse. So it's commonly misused by people to suggest that our works, our good works are going to be the way we earn our way into eternal life, because that's kind of the question that this rich young ruler is asking Jesus about. Other people, they want to, um, their primary concern is combating that error. And so they try to inter- you know, read this passage as though it's just offering a doctrine of justification when it's giving us more than that. And so I don't want us to miss out on what's in the text because we're trying to combat a mistake, a mistaken use of the text because we could fall into our own error that way. It's also used by some Muslims or those who deny the deity of Jesus to say that Jesus himself is actually denying his own deity in this passage when he says no one is good but God. Others want to use this passage to teach socialism. So this is kind of a hotbed passage, this rich young ruler section. But I, while I'm going to deal with all that stuff, I want to focus on the central issue, which is um, that when you come to Christ, you need to come poor. You need to come with nothing. And I don't think it means you, you have to sell all that you own. I do think it means you have to come with nothing except total yielding and commitment and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read through the passage right now. And if this is your first time, welcome. Uh, This is the Mark series, verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. This is part 37. And we cover theology, apologetics on, on this channel. I do all kinds of other topical content as well as verse by verse. And if you're interested, you could subscribe uh, to get that free content. So here we are, Mark 10, verse 17. Let's just dig right in. We're going to read through the passage, just the whole section, at least through verse 27. Just load it into your mind. Get the get the flow of the passage. Don't have any assumptions yet. Just read it. Just see what happens. And then we'll go through it verse by verse and try to unpack it all. So here it says, as he was setting out on a journey, this is Jesus setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God for with, for all things are possible with God. So this is, this is the whole story. You need to, you know, we don't want to interpret one piece. We want to look at the whole thing, but to get there, we're going to go verse by verse through. So we're going to start here with verse 17. And let's see if we can answer these various debates and issues and get the heart of the passage. I mean, Jesus does have something for us to apply to our lives today. So we want to make sure we get that. Here we are, verse 17. And he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let me talk about the man briefly here. We actually get more information about this particular man from the other gospels. We find that he's not only rich, he's also young and he's also a ruler. So that's why the title here in the NASB is uh, the rich young ruler. Um, so let's just focus on the richness for a second, because in Mark, that's all you know about the guy. In the gospel of Mark, he, he doesn't focus um, by the inspiration of the spirit. There's no focus on him being young or a ruler here. It, it's in particular him being rich. Well, 
with richness being the single attribute we know about the man in the gospel of Mark, we can understand how this passage is very much about the man being rich and about the place of riches or of what we can offer to God for our salvation, about how that has ultimately no place in our salvation. That I think is going to be a main focus here. But normally, back in their culture, a rich person could go around. In fact, the IVP Bible background commentary by uh, Craig Keener says this. A man of wealth could normally find the best or more popular teacher for himself. They would be able to to go ahead and either travel to the teacher, hire him, maybe even full-time hire him to just tutor that individual. This was something that the wealthy individual was used to, these kinds of privileges of wealth. And Jesus' response is going to be really interesting because he completely... uh, He just disregards all that. Um, Now, the other thing we know about the man is that he's a ruler. Uh, We do know this from other gospels. Uh, So some people, because of this, they guess that perhaps this rich young ruler is actually Paul or Saul, the apostle, before he ends up getting saved. And why do they say this? Because he's a ruler and Paul was part of that ruling class. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees and he's he's one of the Sanhedrin. And so he's a ruler and that would be cool. That would be cool. But that's kind of like the only strong evidence we have, I think, of this. Everything else is just sort of like subtle implications and stuff. On other people, they don't say it's Saul. They think the rich young ruler trying to identify who he is. They think it's John Mark, the author of the gospel. Other people think it's Barnabas because Barnabas, he sold all he had in the book of Acts. And so, well, the rich young ruler is told to sell everything. And the later Barnabas, he comes around and he sells all and he follows Jesus. Um, I have a, a few problems with with this. And, and and really, I don't recommend you try to find the identity of this guy. I think it's, we don't have the data. We don't have the knowledge of who this person really was. And it's not important. But I'll say this, the word ruler, the word ruler, archon here is a generic word. And it could refer to someone who's part of the ruling class of like the, the Sanhedrin. It could, but it could also refer to somebody else in a number of other positions in society, in Jewish society or other other uh, Roman society. So it just means ruler. It's too generic to like say it's this exact kind of position. Also, as we've seen in the first study in the Mark series, when we talk about who wrote Mark. Mark has a tendency to include the names of people who can be accessed by his his audience, the people that were alive when he wrote. If, if you can access that person to hear their eyewitness testimony firsthand, Mark seems to include their names normally in the passages. And so obscuring a the, the name of Barnabas or of um, Saul when these people are ones you'd want to be able to go to and ask, tell me more about your encounter with Jesus. That doesn't seem like Mark's style, right? So this guy seems to have fallen off the scene. Chances are he left and that was the end of the story with him. He didn't continue, uh, at least to the knowledge of the gospel writer, he didn't continue to turn and follow Christ in some future time. So the other thing is, um, you could say that, that Mark is the one, here's the rich young ruler, but um, the, the Again, this is just, we're just making stuff up. So I'm just going to move off of that topic. Like we're just making things up. There's no actual like real solid ground. Sometimes when we're doing Bible study, we have an idea that's exciting to us. And so we want to read it into the text. We want to read it as though it's there when really we're getting way out of bounds. And I think it's better to preserve a careful hermeneutic where we don't go beyond what scripture says, even when we want to, and we just let it say what it says. And so that I think is the rule here. The last thing we know about him is he's also young. He's also young. And this only implies that the man's rulership, his whatever position he had in society as a ruler, is probably influenced by his wealth because he's a young ruler. Generally, you had to be older to be a ruler, but he's young and ruling. So perhaps he's used to wealth giving him privilege, wealth giving him status, wealth opening the door for him to get places other people can't get. And that's kind of perhaps how he's approaching Christ. But I don't want to demonize the guy because look at the description in verse 17 of how he came. It says that he ran, the man ran to Jesus, which of course is not typical of someone who's like full of pomp and, and, and I'm more important than everyone. That's not typical. He runs to Jesus and then he kneels before, before Christ, which in their culture, here you have someone of some societal status. He's a ruler and he's wealthy and he's kneeling before Jesus. And the hostility to Jesus from the ruling class was pretty extreme at the moment. So he's putting himself in harm's way by doing this. I think it speaks of his sincerity. And then he calls Jesus good teacher. And so he's addressing him as though he's an authority, as though he teaches true things, right things. So all of those things speak to the man's sincerity. The man is probably not good, or I should say we know for sure he's not good as he thinks he is, but he's not hostile. 
He might be confused about how salvation is going to work for him, how he can get heaven or earn eternal life in his mind. But he's sincere, sincerely confused. And we notice his main concern here in verse 17 as well. And this sets the stage for everything we need to know about the passage, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the man just wants to know, like, what do I do? How do I earn salvation? This is so uh, profound and it will bear into justification. Like, how is it that you're going to be saved? What do you have to do? So that's, that's the assumption that flavors the whole passage. Everything that comes afterwards, we have to read it with that in mind. This is about how to be saved. It's not just about um, like how to obtain some other blessings of life or, or something like that. This is about how can I get salvation? But his assumption here is that there's something he has to do, a work he has, the, the rich man, that he's going to perform that will earn him eternal life. So he, he's doing this based off of works, not based off of purely the grace of God. He would actually, like a lot of um, religious groups, he would affirm God, he needs God's grace in some measure. But he thinks in the end that after the maybe God giving him some measure of grace, he has to earn something to get eternal life, do some work. And um, Jesus is going to blow that out of the water. So this is good, though. The, his perspective is kind of like a natural human assumption. Like there's something I'm going to do to inherit or gain eternal life. Uh, there's some work I have to perform. We kind of assume this, but we make the same mistake that this man is about to make, which is the mistake of thinking that he'll ever even potentially be successful in doing what needs to be done to inherit eternal life. Coming to Jesus, of course, means that you recognize he does it. I don't. I inherit uh, his inheritance. He gives it to me, the thing that he has earned. So um, here we go. Uh, notice, notice, though, before we move on, his positive attitude towards Jesus. Very positive attitude. It's made more striking by him being a ruler. And the the beginning of the passage sets the stage, sets the tone for everything else we'll talk about is he thinks that, that he'll have a goodness that is produced from his life that will be salvation for him in the end. And Jesus is going to deal with that in detail. So verse 18, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let's pause on this for a bit because this is the, this is the verse that uh, Muslims will use and they will use to say that, that Jesus is actually, and, and those who deny the deity of Christ, that Jesus here is denying his own deity because only God is good. Now, the simple tr you know, Trinitarian understanding here is there is only one God and Jesus is that God. So when he affirms that no one is good but God alone, he's affirming his own goodness. The, the question is whether or not in other places, scripture teaches that Jesus is in fact God. And he, of course, does. But but this is a great example of where everybody wants to go beyond the text. Um, because in verse 18, if you'll notice, right? Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Is Jesus here saying, I'm not good? No, he doesn't say those, those words at all. You're assuming that that's the conclusion you're supposed to derive from him saying that only God is good. Is Jesus, on the other hand, is he saying that he is good? Is Jesus going, I'm good and God is good? Like, no, he doesn't say that either. It, it's, we're just reading between the lines. In other words, this is not a deity of Jesus verse. This verse isn't about the deity of Christ. It's about the nature of goodness. And the man thinks Jesus is good. He also, you'll find, he thinks he's good. And Jesus is trying to destroy his understanding of goodness and replace it with the right understanding of God's righteousness. And so that's the real focus of the passage. Um, the passage just doesn't by itself answer the question of whether Jesus is, is, uh, is God. It just doesn't deal with it. Now, in light of other passages in both Mark and the, and, the, and the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament that do teach the deity of Christ, in light of those passages, we are right to say that this passage takes on a kind of like irony. There's like an ironic tone to it where he's like, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Because knowing Jesus is called God, that he, the deity of Christ is, is, you know, really solidly taught in scripture, that it does take on this sort of ironic tone. Like, yeah, yeah uh, God's up good and you're calling me good. What is that? So that kind of does happen there. I think we are right to acknowledge that just to know that we don't get it from this verse. We get it from other verses and we apply it to this verse so that we have the full teaching of scripture on it. What's uh, actually worse than this is that Muslims or anybody who want to use this verse, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. If they want to use that verse to deny the good, the, the godness of Jesus, that he is deity, they also have to deny his goodness. That's actually an even, in other words, they have to fall on an even harder sword than they thought because they have to say Jesus isn't even good. If, if, if Jesus isn't God because he's only God is good, you're saying Jesus isn't even good. 
Yet scripture of over and over affirms the goodness of Christ. And I mean the supreme and total goodness of Jesus in every way, shape, and form. He is without sin. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Um, Hebrews tells us that, uh, that he is a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's Hebrews 7.26. So we, we, we get this doctrine of the goodness of Jesus taught throughout scripture. Even in Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 45, just a few verses down, we'll see. Jesus is going to affirm his goodness in a different fashion, in a way that would make more sense to Jews, perhaps, than to modern people today. But it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to what? Give his life a ransom for many. Jesus here in Mark 10, and, and as we proceed in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, he's portrayed as the sacrifice that God brings to pay for our sin. He saves us with his sacrifice. Now, sacrifices in that Jewish context had to be pure and good. And so a man, to be a sacrifice for other people, he must have no sin so that he can offer for their sins. This is significant. That's also what the book of Hebrews teaches and stuff like that. So, so yeah, the, uh, the, the, the Islamic sort of use of Mark 10 is to suggest that Jesus is neither God and it would require them to say he's not good either. That's a pretty significant thing and it goes all against what scripture teaches. So what then is Jesus's main point? Um, it's not about his deity. He's not actually talking about his deity. There's an ironic undertone there, but that's not the focus. This verse is about this man's measure of goodness, the rich man. His evaluation of goodness is messed up and Jesus is trying to fix it. The man compares goodness from person to person and he thinks, I'm a good person. You're a good teacher. You're a good this, you're good that, and you're bad. And he's doing it by human to human comparisons. And Jesus is trying to get him to compare his goodness to God. In which case, he's not good, right? Because only God is good. Jesus' point is not that Jesus isn't good. His point is that the man isn't good. And all the rest of the, the tone of the conversation serves to teach the man slowly. He's stubborn about this, but it serves to teach him slowly that he's not good. And therefore, he cannot earn eternal life. There needs to be some other way. And uh, yeah, the man's standard for goodness is bad. It's wrong. Now, the theology of the Jews, just so you know, um, and this is important, I think, to recognize, the theology of the Jews at the time, their, their understanding of theology, already had this doctrine in place. They did believe that God was uniquely good. They would rarely call a teacher good teacher. This is a pretty rare thing, that exact phrase. They would use the term good to talk about people, but they understood that when they talked about God's goodness, it was like on a whole different level. God was good in the ultimate sense, and man was only good by comparison to other people. Good for a man kind of thing it, it you're, you're good for him it's kind of like when you get really cheap food and you're like well it's good for takeout you know <laughs> it's not it's good comparatively but not ultimately good so he had the theology in place as a jew he had the theology in place to recognize that he'd fallen short of god's glory and of god's holiness and of god's goodness to recognize that there was no work he could do to earn his salvation but he but there's just a disconnect and that is the case for a lot of people they understand that God is ultimately good, but they still think they can work their way to salvation through their goodness. That's the same disconnect that that, uh, that he had. Now, here's a side note. Uh, maybe this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, and uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna harp on it just for a moment uh, because I think that it it creates healthy interactions between us as Christians. How often do you have to respond to people with the way Jesus responded? So, for instance. I go to church and I'm there and I'm, I'm, I meet a buddy there and, I, and he goes, hey, Mike, how are you doing? And I go, oh, I'm good. I'm doing great. And he goes, well, Mike, no one is good but God. Only God is good. So you can't proclaim your own goodness here. Um, some of us intuitively go, yeah, there's something wrong with that. Like you don't need to do that every time someone says I'm good or he's a good plumber. Well, no one's good but God. Like I don't need to do that. But let me build a biblical case for it. So let me give you a few few verses to try to eradicate this socially awkward moment that is often created, I think, by um, well-meaning, well-meaning believers. So here's where scripture uses the term good in reference to people. And you have to reconcile this with your view that only God is good. So I'm going to do that. Let me create the tension and then I'll give you the reconciliation. Matthew 5.45, it says... Um, that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And that's the same word in the Greek as Jesus when he says no one is good but God. But here Jesus says that God causes rain to fall on the evil and the good. How does that work? Uh, well, there's another verse here for you. Matthew 12, 35. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. So Jesus is talking about people like they can be good in some sense. And then Luke twenty three thirty. 
here we have uh, then they will then um, 2350 that's what I want not 30 and a man named Joseph who was a member of the council this is the guy who offered Jesus his tomb a good and righteous man he's called good and righteous how does that work I thought only God was good is the Bible being inconsistent here I know the reality is that the Bible, uh, when the context is salvation, earning your salvation, we make sure to make that distinction. Your goodness falls short. You fall short of the glory of God. You sin, you fail. When the evaluation is of people compared to people, yes, you can be like, well, he's a relatively good person. And Joseph was. He was good and righteous in a sense, not in the ultimate earning your salvation, your stance before God, but in that human relation sense. So it's okay. It's okay to say, I think that man should be... Uh, is qualified for ministry. Uh, he's he's a godly man. He's a good man. And I don't mean he's earning his salvation. That's fair. Or you could likewise say that you're having a good day or you're, you're doing good. <laughs> and people shouldn't have to rebuke you for it. When do we need to do this? When do we need to tell people, stop right there, only God is good? It's whenever they're saying they're good in the context of their own salvation, of their own eternal life. That is where we have to, like Jesus, create the awkward, socially awkward moment where we go, actually, you're not good. Only God is good in that sense of earning salvation. Only God is righteous. God meets that. You don't. All right. So hopefully that is going to fix everything that has ever gone wrong in the church. And here we go. Mark, back to Mark 10, verse 19. And I pro I'm not going to be doing, just so you guys know uh, in the chat, I'm not going to be doing uh, Q&A today. I will do other videos that are Q&A for the Mark series. I occasionally may do Q&A, but for the most part, I probably won't for this particular series. I, I'm just trying to seek to do what's most fruitful. I'll do other videos with Q&A stuff um, other, otherwise. So Mark 10, 19, it says, uh, you know the commandments. Jesus, now just remind us of our context. Jesus, uh, the guy's like, Jesus, what good thing do I do to inherit eternal life? So he's going to do it. He's going to perform. Jesus challenges his idea of goodness. And the man, he doesn't, still doesn't get it. You'll see, he doesn't get it yet. Then Jesus holds the standard of the law. And remember the purpose of the law is to show us that we're not good. That's one of the functions of the law to show us that we're all condemned, that we all fall short. It doesn't work with this guy though. But here's what Jesus says in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, and this is where it gets strange for those who know scripture. Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And We'll talk about that in a minute, but, but he affirms, I have obeyed all those commands, all of them. And, and consistently from the time I was a, a kid until now, looking at him, verse 21, Jesus's response is interesting. Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus then just changes tactics, I guess I'll put it that way. And he, and he targets a whole different issue that exposes the man. But before we get there, Let's look at the commands Jesus gives him because there's kind of a, a bit of a riddle here, a bit of a mystery in these. Notice he gives them five commands that are in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He gives them five of those, but then he gives them one that's not, and that's do not defraud. Do not defraud is not part of the Ten Commandments. It's the one that's not uh, part of those. And that's why, like in the NASB, they don't put it in the capital letters to let you know he's not quoting here the, uh, the Ten Commandments. So that's interesting. Um, now, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in a parallel passage, it does add one that Mark doesn't have. And that is, it has the phrase, on, um, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Matthew has. And it doesn't have defraud. Now, those are related. Don't defraud and love your neighbor as yourself. They're related. But it may imply that Jesus actually gave him a longer list than what's written here in Mark. That may be the case. It may be that Jesus named off a number of other commands and they listed five and then the do not defraud one. But my question is this. And I'm drawing, you know, it's the differences that draw your attention. It's this do not defraud one that get, that grabs me. And I'm like, why? Why one that's not one of the, the 10, um, even though all the others are, why do not defraud? And it might imply that the man's wealth had been the result, at least in part, of defrauding other people. Now, there's different ways of defrauding. You know, in in this is something good for employers to know. When you don't pay people what they deserve for the kind of work they're doing, that's defrauding in a biblical sense. Now, you can't necessarily legally come against people for that exactly. But if you pay, if you underpay your employees, that is defrauding them. The money you have should have gone to them for the work that they were doing. So that's just one element of what good defrauding could be. Uh, and the, the wealthy, um, this, is, this, is, this is 
uh, it's rampant amongst the wealthy that they're this in reality in real life right that they take advantage of other people's poverty and their dependence upon employers to sometimes take advantage of them and so that may be uh an, an accusation a subtle accusation from jesus but the guy doesn't he denies it he doesn't get it and ha- so how do i view the man's, the man's response in verse 21 he says teacher i've kept all these things from my youth up Notice the difference between the red letters and the black letters here. Now, I realize that not every red letter we know is something Jesus said. Sometimes they're guessing. He said, but here it's clear. Jesus definitely said verse 19. The other guy said verse 20. I will trust everything Jesus says, but this man's self-reporting about his own goodness, we should not trust. Why? Jesus began the whole conversation with a statement that the man's measure of goodness is messed up. He's not understanding what goodness really is. I think that the man is wrong. And this changes your interpretation of the passage. The man has not really kept all these things. And Jesus, I think, would also say that he's wrong. I think that Jesus, because he says that if you, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. That's one of the commands he told the man. Yet he says, if you commit, if you uh, look with lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. So the man's not thinking that. Maybe he hasn't heard that teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5, but But yet that is the teaching of Jesus. That's Jesus's measure of the law, applying it to people, measuring their goodness. The man doesn't do that. He has his own watered down version of goodness. Jesus says, if you, you know, he says that a man don't murder, but he also says, if you, if you hate without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. So Jesus then later in the same passage, he affirms that this rich man is not saved. So he has not obeyed the law. That's a key thing here. The man thinks he has. And that is meant to uh, give us an illustration of the kind of people that we encounter every day and the kind of people we might be right now. You really think you're good. You think that if you died, you would, you would by right of your character qualities that you would, you would enter into heaven. That, yeah, I need Jesus. I need some grace. But I'm also just, I'm, I'm good. Like, I do good. I don't, I don't kill. I don't steal. I don't murder. You know, I don't lie. Uh, you know, I, I'm a good person. And I think that the point here is to just destroy that self-image by showing us God's righteousness. And the law is meant to do that, but we, we even water down the law. So, um, so yeah, he's kept his version of the commandments. You know what he's like? He's like Paul the Apostle before Paul was a Christian, before he was trusting in Christ. He thought he was righteous too. And look at Philippians 3.5. And, and this is, um, I hope I can explain this well. But basically, Paul... He's, he's giving us not just a description of how he was before he was saved, before he was in Christ, but he's giving us a description of what he thought like before he was saved. So it's the perspective he had when he was like the rich young ruler, who probably wasn't the same guy, but they were similar, that, that he was just like him thinking he was good. Here in Philippians 3 verses 5 and 6, it says that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now, does does Paul really think he's actually blameless before God? No, I mean, because he's the same one that wrote Romans 7 and says that when uh, when he learned about do not covet, that sin revived and he died and he needs a, he needs a savior now. In Romans 7, he makes all that very clear. Romans 1 through 3, he makes it clear that every person falls short of the glory of God. The law shows the Jew they fall short and uh, moral awareness that God gives all people shows the Gentile that they sh- they fall short if we're listening. But before he was saved, before he had that standard of God's goodness, he had his pharisaical understanding of the law. And you have to remember that for the Jew, when they say, when you say law, when I say law, I'm thinking, oh, Old Testament law. They're not thinking that. They're thinking, it's related to that, but they're thinking at their time, our pharisaical understanding and interpretation of the law, along with all the extra regulations we've put around it. And so I have all these things I do every day that keep me blameless according to the law. Long story short, Paul doesn't actually think he's righteous in the present tense from those things he used to think he was back before he was saved. Just like he thought zeal for God was persecuting the church. He thought that as well and he was wrong. In the same sense, the rich young ruler is wrong. And this again affects your interpretation of the passage significantly. Jesus then responds uh, and hones in on one issue. And this might be good advice for us when we're witnessing. And when someone just thinks they're generally good and you, and, you, and you talk to them about moral standards and they're like, oh yeah, I do that, I do all that, is to maybe hone in on one issue. Jesus hones in on one issue and it is the man's commitment to wealth and the man's commitment to his own uh, kingdom in this world instead of eternal life. 
So looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Let me get you back there. Sorry. Um, Mark 10, 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. By the way, that's the only time in Mark where Jesus, it said, felt a love for somebody. It's not like he didn't love everybody, but it's just interesting to note. This is, even when Jesus is showing someone their sin issues, even when he's giving them hard words, that in this case, the guy turns away from it, walks away from Jesus, he's still doing it out of compassion and love. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor. Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Let me do a quick note. Uh, Jesus versus prosperity preachers. And do, do you notice the difference? I'll read it one more time. I want to ask you, the audience, you guys, to think about it. What's the difference between Jesus here and how what he tells the guy to do with money versus prosperity preachers? Jesus says, Go sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus, unlike prosperity preachers, he doesn't want the man's money. Think about it. He doesn't want the man's money. He wants the guy to sell everything he has, give it away to other people, just pick poor people, go give it away. And then I want you, come follow me. Jesus wants the man, not the money. Prosperity preachers want the money, not the man. That's the big difference. They're, they're saying, sell, give your stuff to me, sell what you have, give it to me. It's an investment. In fact, you'll get even more uh, money in return and all those kinds of promises that, uh, that are, expose spiritual depravity in the heart. But, uh, but yeah, huge difference between Jesus and prosperity preachers. Uh, now, let's tackle the, the, the uh, you might call it socialism, but it's a, it's a broader topic than that. The question is this, is this command Jesus gave the man to sell everything, is that a command for all Christians? Or was it just a command for the one man? That's a significant question we need to ask. And it'll change how we understand the passage. If you, if you say it's universal, then effectively every Christian has to sell all they have, give it to the poor in order to follow Christ. But I think that we have every reason to think that's not the case. I mean, let me, let me say this first. If you're a Christian, you should be willing to do that. Like that should be like, absolutely, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. No questions asked. You want me to sell all I have? I'm going to sell it all right now uh, and give it away whatever you want. That should, that's not the issue here. It's not as though I'm like, I have to fight so we can keep our stuff, but rather I want to understand scripture and the call of Christ to each of us individually. So note a few things. Peter, who is uh, one of the apostles, he had, after he started following Jesus, he still had a house. Him, him and Andrew have a house in Capernaum. It becomes kind of Jesus's like headquarters when he's in Capernaum, but it's still called Andrew and Peter's house. It's their home. So he also still had a boat in John 21, 3, long after he's following Jesus for years. Jesus dies, the resurrection has happened, and then Peter's there fishing. He's got a boat, he's got fishing tackle. These are things that he would have sold if he was supposed to sell everything to follow Jesus. What Jesus wants is full commitment, not necessarily for everyone to sell everything they have, but he wants us to be fully and totally committed to him. Everything I do have belongs to him, whatever he wants me to do with it. That's the natural uh, response of the heart to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, I think. Levi, we read about Levi. He's a follower of Christ, one of this, the disciples. He's, he has a house and he's throwing a feast and he's, he's hosting a feast there. He's not selling all he has and giving it away, he's, but he's using all he has for the glory of God. Jesus and the apostles actually depended on the ongoing support of followers. These, these are women in particular that we read about who still had their jobs and still had their wealth. And then they would give some of it to help support the work of ministry that Jesus and the disciples were doing. And we read about this in Luke 8. And my point here as I go to the passage, is that these women, um, then we'll get a list of them, and then that they were continually supporting Christ, that they had to have maintained their money and their jobs in order to continually support ministry. And that was, it's considered a laudable thing. They're not considered selfish because they retained their money. So some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, this is Luke 8, 2 and 3, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, so she's still employed, she's still got that job, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So they still had private means. They didn't sell all and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. They had private means. Um, that, I think, is is important for us to recognize. We, there's others we could look at. Uh, we, uh, we have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who host Jesus long after they're followers of Christ in their home, which they obviously didn't sell in order to follow him. They host him much later. We have Lydia, who's a seller of purple, who becomes a host of the church. She uses her wealth and her large home in order to house the church and 
have people gather in her place in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 4, though, we do have a unique circumstance where a bunch of Christians, new Christians, they sell all kinds of stuff, property, lands, all kinds of stuff, and they and they give it to like a communal pot so they can like live like a communal living type experience. And that's not a bad thing. For one, it's not really socialism. No one's making them do it. There's no government mandate. There isn't even a Christian mandate to do it. It's totally voluntary. It was a work of the spirit, and I think it was a good thing. But it was it was you know the scenario was so different than modern um, socialism and like that the idea that Christians should all take vows of poverty or something like that's just not what's happening here. In Acts four, what's happening is they gather together, and I've discussed this before, but I'll mention it again because it relates. In Acts four, they gather together at Jerusalem for the feast days. These are Jews who are traveling temporarily for a few weeks at a time. They're going to travel, hang out in Jerusalem, and then go back home. There in Jerusalem, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They get saved. They realize Jesus died and rose, and they want nothing more than to stay in Jerusalem so they can hear the teaching of the apostles to learn more about Christ. So how do they stay in Jerusalem? How do they finance their stay in Jerusalem to stay and and get discipled? Well, they sell their homes and they do a communal living type situation. So this was totally voluntary. They did it because they wanted to, and it was temporary. It's never normative in the church. We don't see it happening on a regular basis thereafter. Um, so yeah, it's just not required. Okay, if, so if it's not a universal call, then we, we, we naturally move to the next question. If this isn't universal, then why on earth did Jesus ask this guy to do it? Why does Jesus tell the man, sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me? Why does he tell this guy this? And I'm going to give a couple different reasons why I think this is the case. One, because this is a prevalent sin issue in the man's life. I think that's implied. Jesus is based upon what we get from all of the the teaching of the gospels and the teaching of the Galatians and Romans. The purpose of the law is to show you your sin. Jesus shares the law. The man doesn't get it. He still thinks he's good. So Jesus picks one sin issue and highlights it. And he does it by asking the man to give up something that he loves more than God. And that thing he loves more than God is his money. So this is his prevalent sin issue. And it's seen in his refusal. He'll actually refuse and he'll turn back sad, really grieved because he just doesn't want to give these things up because that's where his heart really is. So this is the one thing you lack. Jesus is saying, you, you know, in the context of eternal life, here's what you lack. Let me show you your need. And the self-righteous need to see something they lack. For this man, it's riches, his commitment to riches. For Paul, it was coveting. In Romans 7, it's especially coveting that he's like, man, you know, I could try to obey all these rules, but but my heart covets wickedly. And that awareness that I covet, that I lust, desire after things that I shouldn't, oh man, it just wrecks me. And so that was an, a, a light bulb moment for Paul. And for, for people who come to Jesus, there's, there's this sin issue that becomes real to them when they're like, it's me. I have sin that I, I cannot come before God in my current state. I am unrighteous. I need, I need grace. I need Jesus. So Jesus here, he's not just telling the man, here's how justification works. He's not doing that. What he is doing is he's taking the man on a journey that, that we're all supposed to go through in life to recognize our sinfulness. This is why the, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't uh, convict us of God's love. Right, Jesus, he doesn't say the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of God's love for you. Instead, it says he'll convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come because it humbles us and puts us in that receptive place to the gospel. This man needs to see that he has lack so Jesus points out an area of lack. Jesus takes him on that journey. So hopefully he'll say, oh, wretched man that I am. Uh, what he's not doing, he's not earning heaven. Jesus doesn't say, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you're going to have eternal life. Actually, he ends it by saying, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Because Jesus is about to go to the cross. And that is where this man is going to discover the rest of the story, where he can get salvation through Christ. So this is like a personalized repent and believe, personalized just for him. And I, I think that's the first reason why Jesus tells the man to sell all he has. The second reason is also for us. It's to teach us and the man, to teach us all, that he has to come to Jesus. And this is profound. This is like where the light bulb moment happens for me personally, and I hope it does for you too. He has to tell the man that the man has to come to Jesus with nothing to offer but a full commitment of his self. He's not offering his goodness. He's not offering his riches. He's not offering his wealth spiritually or his wealth physically. In fact, he has to sell everything and give it away to other people. And his requirement to come to Christ is that he comes with nothing. That is the big light bulb moment for me. 
he he naturally would have expected to be well received as a rich good guy jesus he makes him come poor totally poor spiritually and physically poor he has to come to christ jesus in other words and to put it in context if you're following the whole mark series he makes the man come as a child because in the previous passage jesus taught that if you're going to come to christ you need to come as a child and the children come offering nothing well here's these two incredibly contrasting stories in the gospel of mark children come freely and they're received and everyone must come like a child then this rich man comes with all of his all of the things he has to commend himself his goodness and his wealth he's not accepted he's told he has to get rid of all that stuff and then come to jesus how just like a child like he has nothing and god might ask you to do the same i don't know i don't know he might ask you to give up wealth to come to him, to, to give up a, a, a relationship of some kind, to come to him, whatever it is, if the, the Lord's leading you to give those things up, give them up. Jesus' teaching earlier on is like, gouge out your eye if it's keeping you from the kingdom. You do, to do whatever you have to do. And, and I have a teaching on that. It's not just about physically gouging your eye out. The point is that you'll give up anything in order to know Christ and to follow him. Just like Paul in Philippians, after listing all his credentials in the past, he then says, ah, but I count it all like rubbish, like dung, like manure. It's all just trash to me compared to the excellence of knowing Christ and he'd lost everything to follow Jesus. So that's not a path of earning our salvation, but it is, it is the idea of coming to Jesus fully committed. Everything I own is yours, Lord, and I offer nothing to commend myself to you. That's the, that's the condition the man was going to be in. Nothing commending him, not his goodness, not his wealth, just a full commitment, a yielding to Christ. And amen, that is how a heart receives Christ. That's why I say in the title of this video or the, or the, the uh, thumbnail that you have to be you have to be poor to be saved and that rich people can't be saved because as it pertains to salvation, you must come and say, Lord, all my wealth means nothing. All my goodness is nothing. My righteousness is filthy rags. I come to you and I just receive. That's it. I offer nothing. I'm only receiving. I don't commend myself to you. You commend yourself to me. And uh, wow. Um, now, um, uh, Gundry, in his commentary on this passage, he says uh, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions. It gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. And that's something to be, to be aware of. While Jesus may not be commanding you to give up all your wealth, I hope that doesn't comfort you too much. Because everything you own should belong to Christ. This is discipleship. All that I own is his. Everything is his. When I think of how much to give, I'm just thinking how much of his money he wants me to give here and his money he wants me to give there. It's all his in the first place. So, yeah. Side note, um, we can learn an important truth from this guy's sincerity. Remember, he's sincere. He runs to Jesus, kneels, calls him a good teacher. He's potentially being exposed to ridicule or problems from other people around him. But that doesn't mean the man is okay. And there's a strong... the the the. Um, the current modern, especially modern, but it's it's always been around, the emphasis towards universalism or a particular branch of universalism, the idea that as long as you're sincere, you're going to be received by God. This passage kind of blows that out of the water. Sincerity isn't as godly as you think it is. Sincerity is not as godly as you think it is. It's good. Lying is bad, right? But but it's just one link in the chain to say, okay, I'm at least I'm sincere. Yeah, but you could be sincerely wrong, sincerely deceived, sincerely self-deceived and all sorts of other things. The uh, the man who Jesus felt love for, he still lacks. He's still not going to be saved unless he gives up everything and trusts in Christ. That's what he has to do. He's like the Rome, the uh, the Jews that Paul talks about in Romans 10 that they're they're ignorant of God's righteousness, so they try to try to establish their own righteousness. And anyone who's trying to establish their own righteousness before God, they'll look like a good religious person, right? I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to, you know, I'm a good family man. I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to do good things. But when they're doing it to earn righteousness, those behaviors are an insult to the very righteousness of God. And to them, Jesus would say, you're not good. Only God is good. You fall completely short. There's nothing you can do to commend yourself to him. All right, let's look at verse 22. It says, but at these words, he was saddened. This is the man's response. And he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. In other words, he says, no, he's like, what good work do I have to do? And ultimately he's like, you're going to come to me as a child. You have nothing to commend yourself. And he's like, man, I, I really like my money. I really like my lifestyle. I really like the things of this world. And I want to be able to have both. And Jesus is like, no. And so the man leaves sad. And that's a sad commentary on, on the state of the man. 
Then verse 23, Jesus takes it and he looks around at the disciples and he's going to teach them a lesson through it. Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Good luck, wealthy people. <laughs> and th- this is typical of Christ. He, he makes extreme one-sided statements that are meant to drive something home. And so he's like, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter, enter the kingdom of God. And now this picture gets more clear. The man was relatively good, but not actually good. He was obeying the law as far as he knew, but he still has incredible issues that are keeping him from the eternal kingdom of God, from eternal life. The man does not have eternal life. He doesn't. And his riches are one of the things that's keeping him from it. This is really profound and it just gets heavier. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, and remember that word, that's hugely important, I think, in this passage, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, for, and real quick, let me dispel a, a, a common error. Um, there are those who teach that this phrase, camel going through the eye of a needle, that it references a gate in Jerusalem. And there's like a gate that you could enter through that was very small. And that it was called the eye of the needle. And people would try to get their camels through this gate. And it was really difficult. But they'd have to get the camel down on his knees and kind of push him through. And it was really hard. And you could get the camel through. And it was called threading the needle. I've heard all this taught. And it's just completely made up. Like, I don't know where this came from. Uh, I don't know how it, how it arose. But everything I've read suggests that this is completely fabricated. So there is no eye of the needle thing. Jesus' point is not that rich men can be saved, it's just really hard. Jesus's point, and we'll see in verse 27, is it's impossible. They can't be saved. They can't be saved at all based on their goodness. That's the point. Remember, the whole passage is in context of the good question. Am I good enough? And the answer is no. No, you're not. And in fact, you being rich, it doesn't commend you to God. It actually gives you another stumbling block to coming to God. Another piece of baggage where temptation rises in your life and your commitment to materialism and the things of this world and the and the your satisfaction in 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 this kingdom is barring your way for the eternal kingdom because you are choosing between kingdoms. So his his a different perspective he wants to give us. So he says children how hard is it is to enter the kingdom of God. And I want to focus on that word children now. <clears throat> in this Mark series I focused on Mark and sandwiches. This is this is the idea that in the gospel of Mark he, he'll have sandwiches, a little recap for us, where he gives a story and then interrupts with another story and then concludes with something that ties us back to the original story. So it's like three pieces of a sandwich, the two pieces of bread that are similar here and then, then the, uh, the meat or whatever is in the sandwich. <laughs> That's the second story. In this case, the first story is, let the children come to me for of such is the kingdom of heaven and they come offering nothing. And then the middle of the sandwich is the rich man who comes and he offers his riches and he offers his his uh, his goodness. And that is rejected. He actually has to reject all that to come as a child. And then finally, Jesus, in the only time in the Gospel of Mark where he addresses a crowd as children, the only time, is here in verse 24 where he says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And so, um, so children come freely. But the wealthy, the rich, the good, the people who think that they're good in this world, they find great difficulty entering because everything that they love is what's keeping them from entering, unlike the children. So this is, a, I think, a, uh, a Mark and sandwich. It is a different word than the word for child used earlier uh, in Mark, but it is a word for child. It's tekna. It's just another synonym uh, that you can use for children. So let's talk about the danger of riches a bit. Jesus actually harps on this a lot, and we don't do it nearly enough today, to be completely honest. And probably because we're just really wealthy. We, we live right now, like I, I live in, uh, you know, I live in Southern California. And I'm not wealthy by any measure of Southern California standards. But I'll tell you what, I have more wealth than most kings of the world have ever had in their entire life. Do you know that when I get a headache, I could just like take a, a, a pill and Excedrin or Tylenol or something to help my headache? I've got flat feet, but I have like Dr. Scholl's inserts that help and are, are, they're not custom. Okay. I bought them from like Walmart or whatever, but, but they actually help for my exact flat feet to, to help me to not have that kind of pain. I mean, I could on the phone, I could order whatever food I want and it's just delivered to me. I'm like, Ooh, I think I want Thai food and especially being in SoCal, right? Like I was going to get Thai food and boom, there it is. I got some pad Thai. I got some yellow curry, which is really good by the way. Someone needs to tell my wife how good it is because it is. I can go get sushi or whatever it is I want. 
we are so wealthy. I think the most kings who've lived throughout time didn't have the privileges that most of us have that are part of the, the first world you know, environment. What does that mean? What does that mean for me when I read Luke 12, verse 16 through 21? And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you've prepared? And then here's the, here's the punchline. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I need to not even care about this world's goods, except how they serve the kingdom of God. That's the bottom line. And when I look at my, the privileges and the pleasures and the material ease that I have, being even, even though I'm on the lower rung, but I'm still in a very affluent culture, when I look at those things, I have to see them as a potential temptation, drawing my heart away from my kingdom devotion to Christ. That's a huge, huge issue for us. And we should apply it today. So it, it wasn't about what the man pays to enter the kingdom. He wasn't offering Jesus any money to get eternal life, right? The money was just going away to random people. He had to come giving, uh, giving Jesus himself, but nothing to commend himself. But he also had to have behind him a trail of things that he'd left behind. And he left behind this kingdom for Christ's kingdom. That's the idea. That's, that's the stark picture we're being given. So he won't be like the, the weed-filled soil in the parable of the sower, where Jesus describes that soil as the, the soil that has the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Well, I don't want to be that person. Yet I can be, and my temptation as Jesus, how hard is it for a rich man? Well, guess what? That's probably you and me. That's pr I mean, that really is us. The riches that we have, whether we feel comparatively to others around us in our whole society are just so high right now. I'm surprised that I didn't see more commentaries though. Um, as I re read, usually read a number of commentaries on a passage. I didn't see more commentaries quote this from Mark because I think Mark 8, 34 through 38, it gives us the Markan context of the rich man because Jesus' teaching is consistent throughout. So it says in Mark 8, 34, see what you can learn from this. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's not about earning. It's about denying. And whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. That's the rich man. He doesn't want to give up those things. He doesn't want to lose those things. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And can I say, Jesus is absolutely calling you right now today to live for him with everything you've got. That all that you own belongs to him and it serves his kingdom. And if it's going to harm his kingdom, you don't want it. It's that simple. I think that we're absolutely called to do this. This is part of the call to follow Jesus. I'm not earning my salvation. I'm recognizing that I'm making a choice between one kingdom, this world, and his eternal kingdom. And I recognize this world. What is it worth? I want to gain Christ. I want to gain life. So we have uh, lots of teaching on this in, in the Gospels about where your treasure is, that your heart will be. And that's the evaluation you need to make as you're listening to this so that you don't become a hearer only, but a doer of the word is, is your heart committed to the things of this world? Have you no, noticed yourself more and more be being um, non-heavenly minded about things because you're, you're just so content with the world that it's drowning out your commitment to the kingdom of Christ. That's the real thing we need to look at. I like what uh, RT France says in this, his commentary on this passage. He says the following, the nature and degree of renunciation of wealth, which the gospel requires, may be something which will be worked out differently in different times and circumstances. But if we lose sight of the principle that affluence is a barrier to the kingdom of God, we're parting company from Jesus at a point which seems to have been fundamental to his teaching as all three synoptic writers understood it. Your commitment to the things of this world are absolutely going to keep you from coming to Christ. And if you want to say you have faith in Jesus and you follow Jesus, but yet you're also materialistic and committed to the things of this world, you have to ask yourself if you really do. Um, 
that's a hard word, but it's a needful word. Another commentator put it this way. I like this quote as well. It is sometimes supposed that Jesus condemned riches on economic grounds. It was a bad thing for property to be concentrated in the hands of a few and would lead to oppression of the less privileged people. Modern socialism, right? They want to look at Jesus and think that he's got socialistic concerns, but that's not at all his concern. As I read the quote, I'll continue reading it now. That is not his real objection. He considers far less the harm that a man's money may do to others than the fatal injury which it inflicts on himself. The problem with the rich isn't just that they're not sharing their money with the poor. It's that their money might be drawing their hearts away from God. That's the real scare. That's the real issue that's going on here. And that's the focus that I think Jesus has in this passage. All right, let's look at verse uh, 26. And we're going to be... Finishing this thing out. All right. Therefore, do not fear them. No, that's, that's Matthew 10, 26, which is good advice. Don't fear them. All right. They were even more astonished. Okay, so Jesus, his disciples were freaking out. Like, what? And then he gets even stronger with his statements about wealth. And then they're even more astonished because they're still thinking about goodness and good people getting to heaven, that kind of thing. They still don't quite get it all. But then in Mark 10, 26, they're even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And again, they're thinking about earning salvation the same way the man was, the same way most people do naturally. They think they're going to earn, be good, and that'll get them to heaven. Looking at them, Jesus says, with people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And this is this is the soteriology moment, the, the doctrine of salvation. This, this is where Jesus is absolutely affirming a consistent uh, teaching as we get in, in Romans and Galatians that you, you get there apart from your works. With people, that is with my goodness, my work, my effort, you cannot be saved. With God saving you, you can be saved. That's the bottom line. The law and, and the rule of try to be good to get to heaven is supposed to make us know we're, we're falling short. We fail. I'm a sinner. I need God to rescue me. That's what we get in Christ. Now, this is not the, the doctrine that people plus God, like God's going to, he'll do an initial grace in you, but then you'll do good works that also, you know, complete your salvation. And now you get to go to heaven. That would be a, my understanding of a modern Roman Catholic view. And I think that's wrong. That That's also the LDS view. God initiates it, but you're going to perfect it. And all those types of theologies I think are incorrect and are not what Jesus is saying here. He just makes two strong distinctions. With people, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. And for those who want to rescue the LDS view or the Roman Catholic view here by saying, well, God initially does all the, all the initial grace that gets me going. I think that probably the Jew of the time would have affirmed the same thing. And Jesus is still re rejecting that as with people, it's impossible. They would have affirmed, well, God gave me all the things that I'm now using to earn salvation. Um, yeah. In Mark, in the gospel of Mark, in the context of Mark, and where we're driving at really hard in the gospel of Mark is this revelation that Jesus is the path to salvation, that his, his death, his resurrection, and you simply being committed to him, that's your whole deal. That's all you do. You, you have just commitment to Christ. That's your salvation. Um, so some people try to say that Jesus didn't preach the gospel, but, uh, and that is, that's a progressive Christian view that I think is rejected here as you look carefully at what Jesus did actually teach. All right, verse 28, we get to the last section here, 28 through 31, and we'll finish out this passage in today's teaching. But Peter began to say to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus, we're doing that. We've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who is left. And now he's going to give a list. I want you guys to think of the list. He's going to give the list twice and notice what's missing the second time that is in the first list, but not the second one. There's things you give up and there's things you gain. Give up seven things, you gain six things. Look at the difference. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel, seven things. But that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, six things, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now the question is one of rewards. Um, so when Jesus asks us to give up everything and follow him, he, he's going to be giving us even more in return. We're, we're going to receive, not because we're earning it, but because of the decision we've made to trust Christ, we're going to receive benefits that far outweigh anything we've given up for Jesus. And so the overwhelming blessings of being in Christ are the focus here. The things we, we lose being nothing compared to what we gain. And that's why they lose these things. Not to earn salvation, but according to Jesus, for my sake and the gospel's. 
That's why they give them up right there in verse 29, not to earn salvation. So um, first question before we get back to the, to the difference between the six and the seven is how is it that I gain all this stuff in this life? Like that just strikes most of us, I think, as like a question and you're reading this passage. How is it that I'm gaining sisters and mothers and children and farms and houses and brothers? Like how am I gaining all that in this life before eternal life? How am I gaining all that? And I think the answer here is, is pretty simplistic. It's just that I am part of the body of Christ. I'm globally part of the invisible church. And we're all one with it. We are members of one another as scripture affirms. And so I've gained houses and brothers and all this stuff mothers and and all of it it's all mine in christ this is seen especially in those i think in practical ways who do evangelism and who do ministry occupationally because literally their paycheck is resulting from the jobs and careers and stuff of all their other brothers and sisters in christ they're sustained by the hospitality of others i mean i am right now like as i do this ministry as i, I labor to study and study and teach and that's my main focus it's it's those who've voluntarily supported what I'm doing through their goods because we're all part of one community and one family. So we're true family. We have deep relations. I have real relationships. They're actually my brothers and sisters in Jesus. It's not just that we have common beliefs. It's that we're actually connected. And there's been times in my life as a Christian where I felt that stronger than other times, where I felt my like family connection to Christians more strongly than other times. Can I say that, that when you feel it at its strongest, it, it's in its right place. When, you, when you're feeling disconnected from the body of Jesus... That's a spiritual issue you're going through. Spiritual battle, your perception of Christians is wrong, or maybe your experience with Christians is bad right now. But our familyness is secured by Jesus. He's the head. And that's something that we should appreciate. And if it doesn't comfort you to gain sisters and brothers and mothers and all these things, then it's just because you're spiritually not getting it. The good news is that reality is actually there. Now, let's talk about the list. Okay, so there's seven things you lose. There's six things you gain. And what's missing from the second list is the word fathers that is the thing you don't gain okay you you don't gain fathers you, you would gain mothers plural houses plural sisters brother but you don't get fathers and why is that is probably because like jesus said call no man your father jesus wanted to affirm the fatherhood of god of all of us we're part of a family under one father that's god so no one takes that place no one takes the fatherhood place of god but i think this might have um relation to catholicism in one respect because something you did lose was a mother, perhaps. You might lose a mother as you follow Christ and she decides she doesn't want anything to do with you because of your faith. But you'll gain mothers, plural. Now, if fathers is off the second list because we have a universal father for all of Christians, then why is mothers on the list? If according to Roman Catholic teaching, we have a universal mother, Mary, for all Christians. And I think the answer is because we don't. Because Jesus' consistent teaching, when you take things like this, is to say that there just doesn't seem to be space for the motherhood of Mary of all believers. Rather, we have lots of mothers as being a family in Christ. In Mark 3.35, Jesus says this as well. He says, um, "My Behold my mother and brothers, referring to the people who were his disciples. And he says, For whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and sister and mother. So there isn't this like unique role of, of the motherhood of Mary for all Christians for all time. Not like she doesn't have a unique role in the salvation uh, plan of God. She's just not saving me. But she's, but she's the mother of, of Jesus. This is hugely important. And I'm not, I'm not downplaying that at all. I'm just saying that the universal motherhood of Mary doesn't seem consistent with Jesus's own careful teaching about what we gain and lose in Christ. Now, let me give, let me give you a little Greek thing. This is kind of fun. And it's in your English too. In this passage, notice that it's the word or, that if if you've left house or brothers or sister or mother, so it's not that you have to leave all these things to follow Jesus. These are possibilities, okay? You might lose your, your, your uh, family relationships because you're following Jesus. You might lose financial things like a farm or, or, or a house or whatever. But what you gain back is not the word or, it's the word and. But you gain back houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions. We'll come back to that in a second. So I'm gaining all these things in Christ. I might lose one or more of them as I follow Jesus. I may have those sacrifices in my, in my following of Christ, but I will gain all of the benefits of being in Christ in return. So again, the point here is, as a Christian, whatever sacrifices I make for Jesus are outweighed by the benefits of Christ, absolutely and completely. Totally outweighed, no comparison. 
And of course, with persecutions, which I think Jesus put in there just for prosperity teachers, <laughs> just for those guys, that you will gain persecutions as well. We're not expecting to be living in a kingdom that's in submission to Christ, that is blessing us and helping us along as Christians. We expect that we may well face persecutions and something I think that's coming more quickly in the West uh, than it has in the past. And then finally, in the age to come, you'll gain eternal life. That's what you get in Christ. You, you come to Jesus as a child, you give him all you've got, give away really this world for him, you're going to gain eternal life. So Jesus then, bottom line, he doesn't want your works. He, don't, he doesn't want you to try to earn your salvation, but he does want all of you. Everything you are belongs to him. You're completely his. And your commitment is to his kingdom and not this kingdom, the kingdom of this world. And you have to start looking at your life with those categories. That there is this worldly kingdom and there's the kingdom of Christ. And how I can use the things in this life to serve God, that's what is my priority as a Christian. He wants you. He wants all of you. You don't need to earn it, but you do need to be fully his. You have to choose a kingdom. This age or the one to come. That's, that's the bottom line. And finally, Jesus concludes with verse 31, where he says, there are many who are first who will be last and the last first. And I think in this case, the rich young ruler is one who is, would have been first, but he's last. He's ends up walking away from Christ. And then we have the children who would be last, but they're actually first, they're brought in and they're made part of this kingdom. So that's what I need to do is just be that one who's living a life totally devoted to Christ, totally just wrapped up in, in, in serving and knowing and following Jesus. His words to this rich young ruler give us not only a gospel of salvation by the, by the saving work of God, where my goodness is seen as nothing, but also a real call to true discipleship in Christ, where everything I own belongs to him and everything I have is his. I just, I do that because of my commitment to him, not because I'm earning something by doing it. So uh, there you go, guys. That, that's, that's the teaching for today. I actually was trying to race through, and sometimes I do this, and I apologize for it, because I had so much content I wanted to share. Uh, all the studies aren't going to be you know, of equal length, but today's is a bit longer. And I do hope it was a blessing to you. We're going to continue the Mark series uh, next week, and we're going to be um, just continuing to plot through. I have so much planned, if I can give you little announcement things here. Um, we're going to talk about, like, did Jesus really predict his own death and resurrection? I want to do a whole little topical thing on that. Like, is there a historical case that he, Jesus really prophetically said things about his own death and resurrection? Uh, we're going to talk about the, um, as we approach the, the, um, the crucifixion and then the empty tomb. We're going to talk about the evidence for an empty tomb. We're going to talk about Mark chapter 16 and, and textual concerns about whether that belongs there or not. And where is the ending of Mark actually? Like, what should we be thinking about these things? How do we handle the, the, pass, the passages at the end of Mark? All those kinds of things. I'm going to tackle all that very head on because we, while we do theology, we also do a lot of apologetics in this series. But the bottom line is that um, at the end of the day, it's about applying it into your life. And so I encourage you, as I encourage myself now, be fully devoted to Christ. Everything I have belongs to him. I am, a, I am not just one who believes in Jesus. I am a follower of Christ. I am his and he's mine. And that sets the tone for everything about me. One of the dangers of apologetics is that you can become one who merely believes and not a devoted follower of Jesus. And that's actually a real spiritual danger. And so I, I do encourage you all to take to heart Jesus's extreme call to discipleship. So Lord bless you. Thank you so much for joining and thank you for the mods being in there to uh, help make sure that our uh, live chat is a prosperous thing. So take care.